On this episode of the Aka Education Podcast, Justin speaks with the godfather of contemporary acapella, Deke Sharon. Deke shares behind-the-scenes stories from his work on Pitch Perfect, his work with the House Jacks and Tufts Basilbubs, Disney's acapella sensation, Decapella, and more. Let's get ready. It's time for some Aka Education. Hey everybody, it's Justin Glodish with episode 28 of the Aka Education Podcast, and this one is a big one. You all know him. I don't really need to give an introduction. He is the father of contemporary acapella. You know, you've <laughs> heard of him from the sing-off, in transit, the house jacks, total vocal, pitch perfect, his books, he's everywhere. His name is Deke Sharon. Deke, welcome to the Aka Education Podcast. It is my pleasure to be here. I love education, I love podcasts, and I love Akka. So it's really the trifecta. Yeah, and uh, I'm so glad you're taking part. This is like this is like a big deal for me. Um, you know, you and I were talking earlier. This is this is like a crazy story that um, I don't know if the listeners would care to hear. But um, our first time meeting, I actually met you when you were with the House Jacks um, back in wow, I want to say 2000. Eight. Uh, I can't remember the year, but I know it was the first acapella innovations festival um, that was put on by the now infamous uh, Nixium um, yes. self-help group. If you want, we'll call them self-help group. Um, that was my first time meeting you. And, um, and you know, my biggest thing, I was the vocal percussionist for the fault line. So right. I was more focused on meeting Wes, <laughs> you know, I met Wes Carroll and that was so cool, but it was an honor to meet you then. And, you know, we've, we've, uh, cross paths so many times over the past, you know, 12, 13 years. And um, it's, I'm really pleased to have you here. So oh, it's my pleasure. And we do cross paths often. Uh, yeah. I'm glad something good came out of that whole Nexium mess. And and Nexium, for anybody who's interested in finding out more about it and doesn't really know, they are literally the opposite of a self-help group. So stay away <laughs> The uh, head of it is, in, is spending life in prison. There you go. That's all you yes. need to know. And if you want to dig deeper, uh, there's plenty written about it um, in Reddit, in various articles and, and podcasts and whatever. But um, if you look up uh, modern sex cult, that will uh, that'll be what comes to mind. Anyway, enough about that insanity. Yeah. But yeah, it was great to meet you at that first ever uh, event. And um, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm glad something good came out of it. You know, I, and the beautiful thing is the rest of the acapella world remains healthy and happy and connected and all right. that. So their desire to infiltrate us and use this as a recruiting tool, we were able to uh, to hold at bay. I, I, absolutely. You know, and I mean, I know there's there's documentaries out there, but there's really not mention of us, which is which is a good thing, um, because, you know, like you said, we 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 dodged a bullet there. Um, so. With that being said, I have to ask you, you know, with all the things that I mentioned in the intro, the house jacks, pitch perfect, uh, even pitch slapped from a few years ago, total right. vocal, yep. um, your own podcast with Rob Dietz, uh, counterpoint, yep. um, D Capella, you know, the Disney acapella group, like, where do you find the time to do all of these amazing things? <laughs> uh, I, look, I am, uh, and always have been a busy person and these are all things I love. So they're, 
they, you know, they seep into what would normally be a person's free time, except when you do what you love, it's, it's all, it's all a good thing. And honestly, even back to high school, I remember the head of the computer science department coming up to me one day and being um, angry with me, uh, kind of like false angry, but clearly he was like, oh, you don't understand how, he had a British accent, I won't even try, but he's like, you don't even <laughs> understand what, what an enormous, you know, frustration you are. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I have to rewrite the entire school computer program because of your schedule. I said, well, why? He said, because uh, the the average student takes five, five and a half, six courses, whatever. Um, and the school day has seven periods in it. And you're taking 11 classes. He said, and I wrote the program for nine. I thought that'd be enough, but you have all these extra extra credit things, extracurricular and whatever. And he was like, and I, you know, so don't talk to me for the next week. And I was like, okay, dude. Anyway. That's so I mean I've always but it, but so many of the things were like I was teaching an English honor, like so, you know, uh extra like senior seminar class on mm. future visions, science fiction. Uh, literature and dystopias, and I directed a musical, and I did AP studio art in my spare time, and uh, it, blah blah blah. It was like it's all like stuff I love doing, and uh, I guess they say if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person because uh, that's that's how it used to be. But now we have COVID, so I have uh, huge quantities of free time. I, you know, <laughs> as do most people who are professional um, artists and musicians. That's true. Uh, but man, just, I, I can't imagine what you're like, if you took 11 classes in a seven period day, I, I can't imagine what your calendar looks like in a normal, you know, in a normal setting, in a normal year. Um, I, I want to kind of go off of each little thing here and just kind of talk about each one. Um, first, uh, regarding the pitch perfect movies, I, I think, you know, I, I own the book. I thought uh, Mickey Rapkin wrote a great book, you know, chronicling college acapella and then, um, you know, what they were able to do in Hollywood with the film and you being a part of it. Um, my question is, is in terms of the arrangements, um, did you arrange specifically for the actors in the film um, for the characters they played or were you kind of told what to do did you have creative liberty in what you could do or were you told what to do from higher ups um okay so the director the first movie is jason moore elizabeth banks did movie number two trish c did movie number three in all cases they were non-musicians who knew what they wanted so they mm -hmm. would tell you like this like they would decide who's going to sing which lead vocal section, not always, but a lot of the time. And they kind of knew what they wanted to happen. So they knew, they were like, okay, and then we want to focus on Lily here doing some kind of a scratchy beatboxy thing. Or mm -hmm. uh, this is when Rebel rips her pants. Like, they, like you have script moments, right? So you knew right. you needed to make the music match those. But then when it came down to like who sings which voice part, what specifically they're doing, they didn't care, they didn't know. That's like, those are like the nuts and bolts inside of the machine, right? And the gears turning and all that. Um, but they would want to hear some kind of demos or give, you know, get a sense of what, what the final product was going to sound like. And then they would kind of talk in broad strokes, like, oh, I need a little more of this, or can you add another layer, or, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So it was like, 
uh, well, what would be a good analogy? It's like doing a custom painting for someone who didn't really know how to talk about color, but they knew what they liked. And they'd be like, can I get, like, it needs more trees in the back. You know what I mean? It's like, it needs to be busier in the back. You're like, great, okay, more trees. I got you, I got you more trees. Although uh, Ed Boyer, who I worked closely with th- throughout the movies, uh, he talked about the arrangement I was working on for the finale of the first movie, and he described it as whack-a-mole because I would bring forward something, and then the director was like, no, 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 that, that, like, you know, I didn't say ham sandwich. I said turkey. And you're like, no, I have to hear your email said ham, you know. Uh, and I kept adding more and more layers. And and no one had ever done this in a film before. So I was worried by my, like, last version that it was too much. That it was like a triple fudge layer chocolate cake with chocolate sprinkles, chocolate chips, chocolate sauce, chocolate ganache. I was like, I was like, it's so much. How can yeah. the audience ever process it all? And in the end, they actually thinned some of it out in the uh, in the final editing when it was all coming down because I had like six or seven layers of mashed up songs weaving in and the director was like a mad scientist. She was like, more, more, I want more. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just lost a lot of sleep and, and uh, was in fear. But it all came together well. And there's a lot to be said for the fact that when you're cutting together the visuals in a film, you can tell a story that explains a lot of things that if you've got an entire group of college students just standing on stage, like you can't direct people's ears and eyes with as much clarity and acuity. So it all worked out and it obviously far surpassed any of my uh, expectations or dreams. I was worried Mm -hmm. it was going to go direct to DVD and no one would ever see it. So, uh, come on. It actually became, it became one of the top, selling um soundtracks of all time didn't it uh it was the best selling soundtrack of that of the following year uh which was crazy um i I don't know how often that happens a movie comes out in october and it's the best selling soundtrack the following year and we'd be like the late miz soundtrack and the rock of ages and all these like huge hollywood blockbusters that had 10 times the budget we did in Mm -hmm. fact i remember alvin chia who uh sings bass for take six and he was working with um uh, with the whole crew on the Rock of Ages movie, which was a huge budget thing. They had all the money they wanted in the world. They could get all the songs in the musical, the whole thing. What was that like? Tom Cruise was in it and whatever. Mm-hmm. Everybody was expecting it to be the big musical movie of the year. And they and the whole thing just fizzled. I, you know, I don't even know if people remember it. But even but but he said, like, dude, your little movie came out of nowhere. Like, like what how how did that even happen? And I told him, like, I said, I don't know. A lot of the actresses could barely sing, and I, I lost a lot of sleep. And the blend like gave me like migraines, and like I was like, I don't even know. But somehow the stars aligned, uh, and yeah, it was a labor of love. But it was literally the most challenging and wrought work experience I've ever had in my life. And believe me, I've been in the trenches more than once. Mm. So, um, out of all three movies, um, I'm curious which which song mashup whatever you want to call it, um, battle. What was your favorite to arrange um, out of all three films? Um, which particular one was your favorite uh, to arrange? Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So I don't know if anybody knows the story. I don't know if I said the story. You, you, you asked a question in, in a way that no one's ever asked it before. So now you're mm-hmm. going to get an answer no one's ever gotten. Um, <laughs> it became clear that we needed to do an arrangement for the four washed up graduates um and uh the song was going to be booty work right mm. 
And I was working late that day with some of the actresses, maybe doing like individual private lessons or whatever. Uh, but Ed Boyer was back at our like like motel at the house. I don't even remember where the location was. Um, but he was like, okay, dude. And he like put a bottle of bourbon in a shot glass in front of me and said, <laughs> we need to do this arrangement of booty work. And I think the most important thing is that we don't overthink it. So I went into the song and I recorded two parts, start to finish. And uh, I think you need to take a couple shots and just sing what the other two parts are. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and I looked at the shot glass and I was exhausted. And I was like, I think you're right. <laughs> and so that arrangement is literally the most crazy, chaotic, like off the cuff. You know, it's like the anti-Bobby McFerrin circle song, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, these recordings got sent to the actors who then listened to them by ear. And then that became the, the arrangement they sang. They all learned the parts and then they just vomited them back out. And <laughs> the awkwardness that is that arrangement uh, was born from, you know, bullet bourbon or whatever. Um in the most genuine and loving way possible. That's awesome. Like I, I also I thought you were going to tell me, you know, one of you know one of the Bella songs or you know Das Sound, you know Das Sound Machine. But no, like it's that one group that. <laughs> I, that's hilarious. I, I love that. And by the way, and if I love you, the story you want another it. like really weird coincidence. Um, John Hodgman, when working on the first movie, came up to me and was like, "Deke, Deke, you don't remember me." And of course, like everybody knows John Hodgman, right? He was in those Mac and PC things that he was mm -hmm. on the Daily Show a bunch. He's written several books. So of course I knew who John Hodgman was, but I was like, I was like, John, I, I clearly I know who you are, but I'm I'm I gotta tell you, I can't say that I remember who you are. And he said, Well, I grew up outside of Boston near Tufts University, and I'm a few years younger than you, uh, several years in fact, but my parents knew um, you know, I was a little overachiever and I was busy. And uh, I really wanted to get into radio. So they found a local radio station for me to go and have my own radio show on. And the community station was WMFO Medford Radio, which was yeah. housed in a building, Curtis Hall on the Tufts campus, literally across the doorway from the Beelzebub's room. And he oh, said, wow. so for multiple years, I was a little like late blooming bespeckled guy who walked in with my vinyl albums to to put on my radio show and i heard you rehearsing the beelzebubs across the hall and i was That's like phenomenal i was like dude really yeah <laughs> anyway he's like the greatest guy he's funny and smart and he's everything you would, you would expect him to be but yeah he was one of the people who had to like listen to our um <laughs> bourboned ramblings and then uh present them for the camera yes that's great. Um, last pitch perfect question. Um, and I, I know that um, I know the story, but I'm curious as if to our listeners know, but um, is it true that um, Benji, you yep. know, Ben Platt, yep. his character was actually modeled after you? Yes, it's actually true. Now, the thing people need to know is I never did any magic tricks and I <laughs> uh, didn't have Star Wars posters. In fact, my mother was a fine arts docent and a, and a professional interior designer or whatever, like raised me on, on fine art and whatever. So I had like huge Renoirs and things like that up on my wall. Like, uh, you know, I went down to Harvard square and got giant posters of, of, of art that, that those were the posters adorning my walls. Um, 
but the story is true, and it's all chronicled in the in the nonfiction book, Pitch Perfect. There's a chapter about me in the early days of of the uh, collegiate acapella world when I was in there, and my um, having to audition for the Beelzebub three times. And in, in fact, in one of those cases, the second time, I convinced my roommate then, who was in the double program with me at the New England Conservatory of Music that like let's audition together and it'll be so much fun he was like oh dude i auditioned already they didn't take me in. i'm gonna focus on my classical singing and stuff like that i was like no no no, dude it'll be so much fun we'll get it together and they didn't take me a second time but they took him and he was like this sucks i didn't even want to do it now i'm in the group and you're not and i was like uh um but the problem was they pegged me as being overzealous that was that was the terminology they used back in those days the acapella groups on campus really were like rock stars, but they kind of mm. carried themselves like it wasn't a cool thing to do. And I was completely into it. I've been collecting uh, acapella albums since middle school and was absolutely in love with mm, all different kinds of acapella from around the world. And, you know, Bob McFerrin and the Nylons and the Bobs and Montezuma's Revenge from the Netherlands. And like, I had been collecting, collecting, collecting. Um, and of course the Beelzebub's came to my high school and I was like, this is amazing. And a large part of why I went to Tufts was because of the Bubs. So I walked into that room more prepared, more knowledgeable, more experienced uh, about acapella than anyone who'd ever auditioned for the group. Um, mm. I knew, and, and it wasn't like, I knew all the guys' names, but not like in a creepy stalker way, just because they were like idols of mine. And in fact, when I went through the audition, uh, this for people who know auditions this is going to sound completely ridiculous and presumptuous, in it, but I didn't know any better. I assumed every single member of that group was a rock star musician with unbelievable talent, probably perfect pitch. All of them could arrange, like since they were my idols and I'd been listening to their albums and studying their music, they just took on larger than life uh, image for me. So I walked mm -hmm. in there, sang my solo. They were like, wow, that was fantastic. Now we're going to check your vocal range. And I said, oh, you don't need to do that. Here's my high note. Here's my low note. Here's my break. And they kind of laughed and they were like, no, 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 kid, we'll, uh, we'll check it anyway. So of course I sang my scales and they were like, he's exactly right. That's his high note. That's his low note. That's his break. And then they gave me a piece of music to sight sing. And I said, you know, I don't want to be rude, but I, I feel like I should be fair. Uh, this Bushes and Briars um, arrangement by Vaughn Williams is on your 1983 album score. And I've heard that. I don't know if it'd be fair to have me sight sing it. And they were like, they laughed and they were like, yeah, it, it's fine. So they had me sight sing tenor one, which I did perfectly, tenor two, which I then did perfectly. They gave me the Barry line. I did that perfectly, except for one note. And at the end, I said, I just want to apologize and measure 17 or whatever it was. Um, there's a half note in the second half of the measure. I sang a, a B flat, but the correct note is a C. They both work in the chord. I just want to let you know that I know I got it wrong. And they just <laughs> looked at me, right? Most of these, maybe one of them was like a music minor and the rest of them were like pre-med or like law mm -hmm. or whatever. And they looked at me like, who is this kid? And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I was just super eager and super excited and I knew all this stuff. And they they were like, I, I don't think it's a good fit. And the thing that, that actually worked out really well is that it just made me coil my spring tighter. It just made me that much more focused and excited. And uh, and it was good for me also to be knocked down a few pegs that, that my whole freshman year sitting mm -hmm. around at the beginning and then at the end also not getting into the group. Um, but my secret, the third time I auditioned, they basically say, if you don't get in three times, don't bother coming back because they're never going to take you. Mm -hmm. I decided 
the only way I'm going to get in this group is to walk in the door and act like I don't care. So I walked into the audition. <laughs> and at this point, you know, half the group had graduated because there were a lot of seniors and a bunch of new people who had taken their places were all friends of mine and people I knew. Uh, but so they were like, uh, hey, Dee, great to see you. Uh, so what song are you going to sing for your solo? And I said, uh, I don't know. What do you want me to sing? They're like, wait, you didn't prepare a solo? And I said, no, but but it's okay. Like, just pick a song and I'll sing it. That's fine. And they're like, whoa. So I don't remember what they picked for me, whatever, but I sang it. And they're like, okay, great. And then I just went through the rest of the audition process, acting like I completely didn't care. And lo and behold, they took me. <laughs> and then I turned around and became music director. And and the rest is, uh, is history. But uh, I think Kate Cannon looked at that story in the book Pitch Perfect, the nonfiction book, and was like, okay, this is clearly the grounds for the the nerdy character. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so. That's uh, awesome. And, and, yeah, and, no, and uh, it was fun also with Ben Platt. He was like, dude, I'm you. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I do like Star Wars, but I don't do magic tricks. <laughs> That's awesome. And I, I know that, you know, tough, the Beelzebubs themselves, you know, there's some pretty great alumni, some pretty great things that have happened with the Beelzebubs. I believe Ed Boyer is actually is one, oh, yeah. but also uh, not, um, not many people know that uh, the Beelzebubs were actually the, uh, the backgrounds and inspiration for um, the, Dal- the Dalton Warblers for Glee, the TV series, their arrangement of Teenage Dream was, yeah. was actually used. And I don't think a lot of people realize oh, that. No, so there's a lot the of, bubs. well, first of all, yeah. <laughs> Ed Boyer was the music director of the Bubs for a few years and he mm-hmm. brought me back to produce their albums which was a complete blast. So I got to know him when he was a college student. And mm-hmm. when it was time for him to graduate, I was like, dude, you're really good at this stuff. Like you're a great arranger, great music director. You should really get like more into it. And uh, of course, you know, here we are now and he does all the mixing for pentatonics and everyone else under the sun. Right. Um, right. And uh, so that's a great connection there. And the Beelzebub's when they didn't win season one of the sing-off, they came in second place. They were overjoyed because it meant uh, no record contract, no management, no nobody was locking him into anything. But mm. the TV show Glee, which originally they were they were toying with the idea of making about collegiate acapella as opposed to high school acapella. I think the fact that it was high school was a lot better for their storylines and all that, so it makes sense. Right. But you'll notice um, if you listen to a lot of the early arrangements, including "Don't Stop Believing." Uh, those are absolute direct rips of versions that were on Boca. Like it's like someone mm. got some great college acapella albums and was like, let's add a synthesizer and literally transcribe their vocal arrangements. Um, right. Anyway, they heard the bubs, they got pushed over the cliff and said, we need an acapella group on the show. They contacted the bubs and the bubs contacted Ed Boyer, who was a recent graduate and living nearby. And uh, they all teamed up together. And And the first song, Teenage Dream, that the Darwin Warblers ever did, went straight to gold, record status, bam, right out of the gate. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they picked the right people and basically the bubs would sing all the background parts, Ed would arrange it and, and record it and send it off. And, um, then Darren Chris sang the lead over the top of it, swapped out whoever sang lead. And that was that. But nice. also, uh, Peter Gallagher, the actor who's been in everything, mm-hmm. American beauty and sex as a videotape and all that. He was in the Beelzebubs, uh, as well in the middle of the seventies. Great guy. Great talent. That's awesome. And, yeah, no, um, my wife and I actually watch, um, What's it on NBC? Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Right, he's on that now. Which he was just on there. And then Skylar Aston is also on there and, you know, from Pitch Perfect. Right, and so course. it's such a beautiful show. But uh, yeah, he's got a phenomenal voice. I didn't know he was in the bubs. That's pretty great. Yeah, that's yeah, really fun. 
So let's talk about, I want to talk about the house jacks because, you know, you've, you've been involved with them, you know, for over 20 years, 25 years. And, um, you know, they're, they're pretty much, I, I would like to think the, that the house jacks were what my group, the fault line had strived to be that, you know, that vocal rock group, um, you know, all voices. And so how did the house jacks come to be for you, especially, you know, you know, you attended college on the East coast and, you know, you brought you know, you're back on the West coast, you know, where you grew up, yeah. um, what got the house jocks together and um, so got that started? I well, Okay. Caveat first, uh, a few years ago, I had to leave the house jocks. I just got too busy and I, I had <laughs> been for over a year subbing out of like half of half of the gigs the group had, and it just wasn't fair to the other guys. And I, I felt like I was bringing them down and whatever. And even though the group was my creation, my baby, like, I felt mm-hmm. like I got to let you guys go do your thing. I'm too busy with this other stuff. It's time to be elder statesman or whatever. So, um, yeah, that said, when I was, before my final year uh, at Tufts and Northern Conservatory of Music back in Boston, I did kind of a dry run um, out in San Francisco and got a couple of my high school buddies together and a couple other people happened to be in the area and put, put together a little um, quintet, in fact. We call ourselves the Mach 5, named after uh, Speed Racer's uh, car. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, and just did like local festivals and, and little performances and stuff like that. And it gave me a chance to get my feet wet, but I really knew particularly after, and I had already been playing with vocal percussion by that point, but through my entire last year in the bubs and creating the recording, uh, the album Foster Street, and really experimenting with vocal instrumental sounds and vocal percussion and layers um, I was like, I want to do this professionally. I really want to create the group that I want to hear, which is all or almost all original music um, and a rock band, like mm. vocal drums, vocal guitars. Like I want a group that's going to be able to play clubs. I want a group that's taken seriously as musicians. Um, and I feel like that's the next step in what acapella needs. And this is not to say that the groups that had gone before us were not important. I would say two of my biggest influences, the Nylons and the Bobs, are enormous, huge shoulders upon which our group stood um, in the early days with, you know, with a lot of wavering or whatever. But um, you know, they, they took big strides forward, but uh, we wanted, and we wanted to take that baton and run with it and, and, and get out there and it took about a year and a half before we were we were able to be full time, but then I think our busiest year in the middle of the '90s, we did over 250 concerts in a calendar wow. year. Yeah, which was I mean you can do the math. It's absolutely insane. We rented a Winnebago, yeah. a Bounder, drove all the way across the country, and then we had a, a whole. Um, batch of gigs in the seattle pacific northwest area so we flew over left the left the uh 32 foot rv parked at andrew chaikin's mom's house in the jersey shore somewhere and then (laughs) did all these gigs and then flew back and we're all around i mean we were we were the rock band living in a van like you know and sleeping in crack motels and doing whatever it took to get successful and our measure of success in those early days really was uh, to get signed to a major record label. And there was a bit of a bidding mm-hmm. war between RCA Records and uh, Warner Brothers' Tommy Boy, which uh, which is where we landed on our feet. Um, and uh, they loved our original music. They were happy to put out an album of all originals with maybe one cover tune on it. And then after three years on the label, 
they just threw their hands up. The marketing department was like, we have no idea how to market this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and uh, the you know our first album, Naked Noise, was really a manifesto about what the human voice can do and how many different styles of music. We've got speed metal on there and rap and pop and R&B and, and like n- new world folk and all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, Tommy Boy gave us back all the masters. We added a couple tunes and that became our second album, Funkwitch. But uh, it was our college agent who really hit the nail on the head. And we knew at the time, she said, you guys sound just like instruments. Nobody can tell. So unless people mm-hmm. can see you doing what you're going to do and, and, and see you in action, there's not... The, the magic isn't there. Like, the music's great, don't get me wrong, but it makes no sense from a marketing standpoint. Like, people can't figure out what this thing is. And she was dead dead right. And it right. wasn't until YouTube and Straight No Chasers, 12 Days of Christmas, and then later mm-hmm. after the sing-off, you know, Pentatonix and other groups were able to really launch themselves that way. Um, and people take it for granted now. But back when we were doing this in the 90s and it was really new and beatboxing was really a, like the... Stick, stick. Like the idea of Andrew Chaikin, who's now known as Kid Beyond, and then after mm-hmm. him, Wes Carroll, literally sounding so much like a drum kit, you can't tell that it's a person. It was just an absolute marketing conundrum. So it was an honor and a pleasure to be that wave just before the wave that broke on the shore and, uh, and everybody knows about it. And uh, I have made so many friends touring around and, and performing. And um, I've had so many people say that your group was the inspiration that got us started. In fact, Impact, you know, Tris tells the story. Mm-hmm. And I remember meeting Tris when he was in college at University of Northern Colorado, which has a great music program. And uh, after he saw us, he said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a group that's half, take six, half the house jacks right up the middle. And that's what impact was, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, and they just celebrated 25 years as well. They just yep. uh, released 25 years of impact and yep. that's yep. A great album. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Super, super awesome. And so great to see. And it makes me so happy that there are so many professional groups out there doing what I wanted acapella to do, which mm-hmm. was to be every style of music, to be out there in all different forms and I know many of them have never heard of the house jacks, but that doesn't matter. That wasn't the point. The point was that we were able to start to change people's understanding of what the human voice is capable of when it comes to popular music. And uh, now they're doing it. Right. And, you know, and, and I've heard people tell, you know, tell me, talking to me about it and how there are certain groups out there that just seem to be ahead of their time, we'll say, you know, and you bring up YouTube and you bring up the power of social media and how, you know, a group like Pentatonix, you know, releasing videos weekly or however it is. And now like there's a group on TikTok, which is literally a bunch of, you know, uh, young, you know, school, you know, I want to say college age students um, call themselves ear candy. And they're, they're some of the most amazing singers, young singers I've seen, Great. but they've, they've collaborated with each other through there. Um, in fact, uh, Nina Ann Nelson, who is in Citizen Queen, is a part of it. And it's just, it's really cool to see. And this brings me to the next question. And it's just the idea of contemporary acapella itself. And we'll talk about it right after this. Hey, everyone. This is Justin from the Aka Education Podcast here to tell you about Anchor. Anchor is what I use to create these podcasts. And let me tell you, it's free. Uh, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And the beauty of it is we'll distribute the podcast for you. So I can record on Anchor and it's going to send it to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all these other places as well. And I love that I can make money from this podcast with no minimum listenership. 
It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So be sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Um, with groups like um, Pentatonix and Citizen Queen and now you know the Pitch Perfect movies, the sing-off, the success of the sing-off, which NBC needs to bring back for another season, by mm-hmm. the way, um, at some point. But what do you see the overall trajectory of contemporary acapella being? Like, Do you personally feel that um, it's still on the rise? Do you feel it's kind of hit a peak? Or um, what is your perception of how contemporary acapella is, um, is going these days? Okay, three-part answer. Number one, uh, contemporary acapella is not the flavor of the month that it was for a while during the sing-off and the Pitch Perfect years, but that's okay. The key is now to not backslide from that level of popularity, uh, which um, in a lot of ways, I think we've been very successful in kind of holding on. Number two mm-hmm. is the, the 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 horrible pandemic, COVID, which has resulted in everything freezing, everything being locked out. Um, and groups having to resort to, you know, performing online or whatever, this definitely has caused a huge pullback. And I know choral enrollment is down because choir sucks over Zoom, you know, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I do have a feeling that once this is over, once people are able to get back to life, you know, normal life, um, they'll have spent so much time in front of screens. They'll be so tired of Netflix that they're going to be drawn to activities that happen in person. And there's really no more interconnected experience than than singing together and people don't realize this but studies have been done course america whatever the number one recreational activity for americans is group singing Mm. singing in church choirs singing in barbershop choruses singing in a a variety of different ensembles acapella or not it is the most popular uh, activity um, and I, I'll bet you most people listening to this would never have thought that. And a lot of educators probably will have their minds blown, realize like thinking they're doing this little niche thing instead of something that is preparing their students, if not for a professional career, to become part of the biggest social activity that exists in America, right. you know, the biggest group activity. Um, so I think those numbers will rise back and hopefully even grow beyond that. Um mm. But the third part of this question was something that I started a long time ago, a, a very small snowball rolling down the hill, and we got 25 years of it now, and I'm feeling really good about it, and it's as follows. When you think about barbershop and when you think about doo-wop, you're thinking about a style of music. You're thinking about a single time, and the, the style of singing and the style of, of a cappella or vocal harmony is a snapshot. And the same thing happens for broader periods of time. You know, I could see shanties has come back, but you're like, okay, that's a that's a moment in time, right? Um, mm-hmm. And people still do it, but it harkens back to this, you know, people sailing the seven seas. Same thing goes for like the forever plaid style four-part groups like the four freshmen and the hilos, right? Same thing goes for other periods of and styles of acapella. Of course, acapella is not a style, right? It's just a choice right. of instrumentation. But these things that I've been mentioning are all specific moments in time. Mm-hmm. When I started the Contemporary Acapella Society of America and the NCCA, which became the ICCA, and the uh, and Boca and the and Contemporary Acapella Publishing, and you know the first acapella festivals, 
rather than have it all be a part of one large monolithic company, much as the barbershop society is, I intentionally decentralized it and handed off these different pieces to different stakeholders who can then make their own choices. And mm -hmm. when it comes to the Contemporary Acapella Recording Awards, when it comes to the different competitions, I made it very clear in the early days that although there would be different ways of judging these different things, never would specific stylistic choices be a part of it. So unlike the barbershop world, like there, there's a certain way of arranging this necessary, certain chords aren't allowed, certain voicings aren't allowed or whatever. None of that was ever allowed to be a part of any of the judging that would happen in, in contemporary acapella. Um, and by leaning so much into youth groups, high school groups, college groups, young professional groups, and also going out of my way to try to educate people not only how to sing well, but also how to do their own arrangements or whatever, the culture of acapella is one that is constantly reinventing itself by grasping for the the sound, the latest sound of popular music or whatever style. Like, you know, when uh, when Home Free's out there doing a country tune, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they sound like modern country. They're not like right. Willie Nelson and, and you know, Dolly Parton, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is all by design because I did not want there to be another big swell of interest like there was with doo-wop, like there was with Barbershop or Four Freshmen, like I said. And, and the good news is it's only grown over the past 25 years. And mm -hmm. a good example of this is in the early days with Pitch Perfect, I mean, sorry, in the early days with Pentatonix, when they were on the sing-off in that first season, uh, or the season when they were in season three of the show, mm -hmm. and they were finding their own style and playing with things. Like, there were a lot of, like, dubstep breakdowns, right? Because dubstep right, right, right. was, a, you know, a current musical a style. Yeah. A year later, they weren't doing any dubstep. They were constantly right. thinking about and reinventing their sound and style to, to uh, adhere itself to the current sound and style of popular music. And mm -hmm. that's what's been going on all the time. And these new groups you're talking about, like Eric Kennedy and Citizen Queen or whatever, they don't sound like acapella from a little while ago. And there are also some groups, like when you talk about Straight Enough Chaser, they have a little bit of a throwback sound, but that's great. Right. So does Michael Bublé, right? And he's a mm -hmm. huge current artist. And there are also classic R&B groups out there and doo-wop groups like the Alley Cats and, of course, tons of barbershop groups. It's not that acapella has to only be current popular music. And in fact, I chose the word contemporary for contemporary acapella music because I wanted there to be a big tent of different styles. And from the first year of the Cars, there was a barbershop category and a folk music category and a world music category and R&B and doo-wop and all that kind of stuff, all of it together. Um, right. So the last piece of this Where's Acapella Going is fingers crossed it'll remain as big as it was and it'll continue to reinvent itself based upon whatever's going on in the overall music spectrum. Mm -hmm. And if anybody thinks that's impossible or crazy, let me remind everybody that before recorded music existed, pretty much everybody sang, right? Mm -hmm. If you wanted Christmas carols at the holidays, you sang them yourself. If you wanted music after dinner, you had to retire around the spinet or you had to like get together and sing and make music. And people also, there was instruments involved. Oh, it's not like there's any problem right. with that. But 
once recorded music came around, it was actually John Philip Sousa, the guy who wrote the marches, Stars and Stripes Forever, and the Monty Python theme, et cetera, et cetera. He, he told people that this is going to ruin music. And everybody laughed at him, you old Luddite, you don't understand, like, this is going to bring music everywhere. And they were right, music is everywhere. But now people themselves aren't the ones making it. It's a specialized field. Pythagoras mm-hmm. believed there were, there were five subjects that everyone should know. One was mathematics and one was music. Um, mm-hmm. And music education has been a centerpiece of human cultures and tradition all the way through time. And it's only recently that it's fallen down the, the, the levels of, of importance to now you get so many people, kids, adults, whatever, who say they're tone deaf. And they're not tone deaf. But they think they are because in the same sense that if you hadn't picked up a basketball and shot free throws since you were a kid, the whole thing would just be scary to you. Same problem. Our vocal cords are just muscles like anything else. I know I'm saying things that you know, but the reason I'm saying it is the human, everybody's hardwired to sing like birds and crickets and whales. And hopefully this groundswell in community singing, in acapella, in a variety of different styles and whatever, is all just helping to bring the human race back to a place where many more people are singing much more often because it brings us together, it knits societies together, and boy, do we ever need that now. And it's Mm -hmm. fundamental to who we are and how we are. I think part of the perception too, at least from my own experience, you know, I teach middle school, um, the perception from everyone around is that with with um, the advancements of, you know, auto-tuning and and things kind of almost being perfect within, um, you know, what you hear, on you know in recordings and whatnot there's this sense of uh, like low self-esteem like feeling that you aren't good enough or that you aren't good because you don't sound as perfect per se as the recordings that you're listening to so at least for some of my younger students who they they lack that confidence because they they feel that they can't sing because it doesn't sound as good as what they hear. Do you find that to be true? Or Well, I, I think there's a plague upon the entire house of, of like every major Western democracy, every, every culture on the planet right now that has access to the internet is mm-hmm. doing their teenagers an enormous disservice because I know when I was in high school, I only compared myself with the other people in the high school, and more importantly, the, the people who were like in the choir and auditioning for the musical, which really wasn't that many people, right? So you're like, well, I think I can at least get a supporting role, and I'm, you know, I'm a good tenor and like one of the better ones. And so your ego wasn't really um, too dashed against the rocks because you weren't comparing yourself to too many people, and you had like a reasonable sampling size, right? Right now everyone is comparing themselves to everyone else. And there are two right. problems with that. First of all, everybody's Instagram feed is a highlight reel, a carefully, carefully like archived version of the ideal life that they're leading, right? right. And second of all, they're all comparing themselves to the most successful and the best of the best. Um, right. My son came to me when he's 14 years old and he said, dad, I'm 14 now and Justin Bieber was already like discovered when he was 14. Does that mean I'm a failure? And it is funny, if it wasn't so true, suicides have tripled among teenagers. Um, right. The number, the, the, the cases of mental illness, and I'm talking pre-COVID, like there's just an enormous amount of unhappiness and dissatisfaction that is driven by 
the, the unrealistic comparisons that are happening online. So to answer your question, yes, I think auto-tune hurts, but I think more damaging than anything is this ridiculous notion that all teenagers should be comparing themselves against the lucky few who have 100,000 followers on, you know, on their YouTube feed or happened to get signed when they were young. Um, and for those people who are listening to this who are younger, let me tell you, there's nothing more miserable on this planet than someone who used to be successful and knows they'll never regain that fame. It is the extremely rare child star who makes it out the other end, either to a happy, balanced life, like, um, uh, oh, like who, what's her face? Um, there are a couple of them. Or somebody who has a successful career and goes on and is really well-balanced, like Jodie Foster, who intentionally stays away from the limelight, by the way. She realizes the whole thing is absolutely crazy, right? Right. Most of these people, like, can you imagine how horrible it would be to be, like, hugely successful at age 13 and by age 17 start to realize you'll never be anywhere near that successful again. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. just like absolutely taunting. And, 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 uh, and I've known some people who've, uh, who've been in those, those situations. Anyway, all of this is to say auto tune is a challenge, but I think the greater challenge is, is mm -hmm. social media. My friend calls it a giant envy engine which I think is an apt description. It truly is. And there's so many, there's so many different ones out there. If it's not, if they're not getting it from TikTok or not getting it from Instagram, they're going to something else. And, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's a push for likes, you know, likes equal, you know, happiness. Um, I, 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 I feel that yeah. some of the, some of these, um, some of this gener some of the generation sees it as, you well, know, of course, the more likes you have great special on Netflix, or whatever the social dilemma, which speaks specifically mm -hmm. to the dopamine hit that people get when, where their post is liked or someone likes a comment or comments back. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's something we as a species are just going to have to, uh, adapt to because I don't think it's going away. Um, and we as a species got more and more savvy around the tricks that marketing was playing towards us and on us, I think. So marketing had to get more clever. But eventually, hopefully, if not this generation, the next generation of, of youngins will realize the whole thing is a giant lie and not be completely sucked into just the, the, the losing game that is trying to uh, measure your own self-worth based on these ephemeral measures like likes. Right. Um, all right. I want to actually, I want to go back to uh, two things. Uh, I want to talk about In Transit mm. because um, I was in love with that show and I actually, I want a poster, like an autographed poster from it, oh, um, but I never had, the I never had a chance to see the show. Um, because it closed before I had a chance to see, uh, to know. get tickets. Bummer. Bummer. Um, but I know that um, you were on essentially as a, a, a consultant for the the four, I believe, four um, writers of the show. Um, and how did that come about? And what was it like um, working with you know Kristen Lopez and Sarah Wordsworth and and others to to create the first ever acapella musical? Uh, for Broadway. Well, it was, it was great. It was actually Kristen Anderson Lopez who reached out to me initially. And basically it was right after they had completed their off-Broadway run. Mm -hmm. They won a bunch of Drama Desk Awards. And for those who don't know it, um, In Transit was really created by four different 
uh, friends, two male, two female, and they decided to create a little acapella group, met a couple other people in it with them, and they were singing cover tunes or whatever, and then a couple of them decided to write a couple songs about what they were going through or whatever, and they started getting better reactions for the songs that they wrote than the original than the covers, which is rare. So they thought, huh, maybe we should write more of these songs. And then those songs started to take on a loose theme because it was all about 20-somethings who haven't really found their place in life. Um, they're always trying to go somewhere, but they're not sure where. They feel like untethered and unsatisfied with their um with what's going on in their lives. And eventually they ended up casting other people to sing to play their roles and they created these 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 more general archetypes basically and um started workshopping it all and then it kind of morphed into an off-broadway production which was great and then of course they had the great uh vision to have a street performer the box man who was kind of a beatboxer and a street poet uh, knit it all together and, and be able to be the vocal percussionist. And that was the great Chesney Snow, who, of course, continued mm-hmm. through to the Broadway uh, production as well. But Kristen uh, reached out to me and was basically like, help, uh, we love our little show. We're very proud of it. We like our arrangements, which we did ourselves. But if this thing's going to make it to the next level, what do we do? And so I said, send it all over. Let me listen to it. And I listened to everything. And it was a cast of seven, if if, if I recall, and I called her back and I said, Kristen, can I have four more voices? And she said, yeah, great, done. So <laughs> I went through and rearranged everything and added four more voices, four more parts, basically, which also made mm-hmm. the show a lot more reasonable because there was a lot of double, triple casting and people changing, doing quick changes off, you know, off stage. It allowed the primary characters to have more specific direction and then the and then the quick changes and the, the kind of choir parts uh, taking on the additional roles and whatnot. Um, and I think we were in we we did backers auditions for three or four more years with different directors and producers coming and going. And then I you know and, and after I'd arranged everything and I'd flown back and worked with 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 singers and and kind of a quasi cast and whatever and. There were a couple of the times that I did backers editions and I couldn't make it or I was on the road or whatever. And then it got real quiet and I thought, um, okay, well, that was fun. But and, and for those who don't realize this, I start things and work on projects all the time and the majority of them don't make it. So people mm. may think like, well, you know, like how, you know, how'd you get so successful with this TV show or this movie or this whatever? And I'm like, you have no idea the numbers of movies that I've you know, talk to people about or help them with and different TV ideas that have been floating out there. And like, it's, you know, the hit miss ratio is much less successful than you think. It's just all you see are the, the, uh, the final versions of the successful ones. Anyway, all of a sudden I get this flurry of phone calls and emails. It's on, we're going, it's going. Can you fly back for casting? Can you be a part? Bam, bam, bam. Um, and it was such a good time. Uh, the cast was amazing, and I had some some fears about casting major successful Broadway performers because they know how to sing, they know how to act, mm-hmm. they know how to dance, they know how to perform. They're amazing, but intricate inner voices and harmonies are tough. And let's right. just say, I think at some point everyone cried, and if they didn't cry from my arrangements. They cried the first time they put in-ears in and they started trying to sing and then they couldn't hear themselves and everything was terrible and they questioned their 
their own talent and it was it was rough but but same as for the disney groups that created american vibe group 66 whatever i hear from people all the time who are professionals now and they're like i've never feared a sight singing or an audition since i met you and people throw eight part harmony in my lap and i'm like ha this is nothing compared to the garbage Jake sharon was making me sing so uh you know we laugh about it all but uh they uh they're, they're forged in steel, that which does not kill them makes them stronger. And um, something I found that was really great is that Broadway singers, good ones, make excellent acapella singers. Uh, they mm. can sing with straight tone if, if you want them to. Um, and the kind of Broadway style of enunciating things really clearly and pure vowels makes for um, great blend, great tuning. And in transit has its own color and character, which you can hear the, the cast album I'm very proud of. Um, mm-hmm. and each version was everybody singing through the song just like maybe twice. And it was like, okay, that's our take moving on. Uh, they're just that good. That's awesome. And, uh, so out of curiosity, cause I, I noticed that it's actually available for, um, licensing. Yeah. Um, has anything been modified or changed for the licensed production through, um, the, it's uh, produ- the production rights company that it's through, or is it pretty much exact to what was on Broadway? Uh, a little bit. So my understanding, cause I, I, you know, handed over all of the, um, enormous finale files and, and of course everything, uh, had been carefully annotated and whatever by the, the music director or Rick mm-hmm. Flores, great guy, Broadway pedigree, et cetera. Um, I believe there are different levels of the show. So there's the whole shebang. You want to do the Broadway version? Go. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a version that has kind of distilled keyboard parts, which are partially what's going on, and then also partially just kind of a made-up keyboard part that uh, that Rick added to the finale files. So if you wanted to do this with a middle school or a high school that's not as experienced, you absolutely could. Um, okay. And the the first high school that was that was uh, slated to perform this actually flew me back to work with them, and after working with them just one day, I said, "Guys, I know you're planning on having the keyboard in there. You don't need it. You can do the acapella version. You have the talent here." And they were like, "Really?" And by the end of the weekend, I was working with them or whatever. It was in Wisconsin. Uh, they did it. They believed it, and so that's how they performed the show. Um, there that's was cool. a little bit that was scaled back, I think. Um, but, but maybe 10%, not much, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are also just a couple words in it that they have alternates for. The show was very PG-13, right? But uh, right. yeah, but, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's a great show. And there's a lot of truth in it. Um, mm-hmm. These really were the stories of these 20-somethings and their lives. And they, they poured their hearts into this production. And I think part of the reason it only lasted four and a half months on Broadway was that your typical Broadway musical really has these huge stakes, life or death, like who's going to like, you know, the history of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a much sweeter show. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, as, and the, the, you know, I, I don't think I'm giving anything away here. Spoiler alert. The, the message of the show is that the journey is the destination. When you're in your twenties and you're trying to figure out who you are, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's the right place to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're, and, and the final song is getting there. Right. Uh, as opposed to like, you know, where am I, where am I going, all of that. Um, and it's, it is an actually profound message. And I think it's, it's uncovered beautifully in the storytelling or whatever, but it's not the same as, you know, Aaron Burr, you know, shooting Alexander <laughs> Hamilton and like, oh my God, right. and, you know, life and death and, 
you know, and and uh, teen suicide, you know, with uh, director, et cetera, et cetera. It's not. I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from those shows, but it's right. it's really very difficult. Shows on Broadway are incredibly expensive to mount, millions and millions of dollars, and there's a lot of competition. And then you get tourists coming in from out of town, and they all want to see, you know, you know, Phantom of the Opera, like the things they already know or whatever. So, right, everybody on Broadway bemoans the fact that it's it's rare to have a musical that isn't created around existing properties, be they Disney movies or books or comics or, you know, the whole Spider-Man debacle. Um, Mm -hmm. So the shows that aren't that have that much of a harder time getting their footing, but beautiful, you know, thankfully shows that come from away and whatnot have, have uh, been able to. So I'm glad to see that success. And I consider the success that in transit had the fact that even made it there uh, to have been an enormous win for acapella. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you had mentioned Chesney and, um, you know, I actually, you and I, you and I had worked with him, uh, at Carnegie hall and, um, we had, we had Kevin Taylor from DCINY on a couple of weeks ago and we had talked about that first, uh, you know, total vocal, uh, not competition, but, um, performance at Carnegie hall saw that sold out and everything. And, um, that was the first time I met Chesney and, uh, such a wonderful soul and just oh, a great person to talk to. Yeah. Um, so I, I just wanted to give him props because I, I think he's phenomenal. And the fact that you've been working with him, you know, for, for a couple projects is pretty great. Um, the last thing I actually want to talk to you about is, uh, your decapella. Yeah. I, I don't want to say your decapella. I would say <laughs> Disney's, I mean, sure, Disney's sure, well, acapella yeah, group, um, decapella. And, um, you know, I know that, you know, you had, uh, Shelly was in there for a little bit, yeah. um, you know, for, from the pitch perfect movies and it's a great lineup of talent. And, um, you know, for those of you that have Disney plus Deke's actually in one of the episodes of Disney insider with, um, uh, Dee Capella, right. uh, singing, I believe eye to eye, That's which right. is from the best Disney movie ever. And y'all can fight me to the death on it. The goofy <laughs> movie is the best Disney movie out there, but, um, how did Dee Capella come around and, um, what are they up to now? Perfect timing because uh, it was actually when we were making the In Transit soundtrack. Um, mm. Kristen Anderson Lopez, while we were like working on and building up the show and all that kind of stuff, occasionally had to disappear because she was working on this thing with her husband and we were flying her out to California. And then she said, What's well, this Pixar thing? And, you know, we didn't get blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, Oh, well, we're, it's called Frozen, and it's coming out next year, and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, Let It Go becomes the biggest Disney movie in 20 years? I mean, it's like right. the yeah. anthem, right? And uh, It brought Disney musicals back, really. I mean, because oh, yeah. Disney no, for a while didn't have back. musicals for a while, so it yeah. really brought Disney musicals back on the map. Totally tremendous. And in fact, because... Frozen had become such such a big deal, and Disney really so appreciated Kristen and and her husband Bobby's work. When they heard about her Broadway musical, the Disney Music Group was like, "Great, uh, we'll make the soundtrack." So that was the like kind of connection. And then uh, everybody in transit was like, "Well, Deke, you you have to produce this album. Like that's mm-hmm. what you do." So they made me album producer, and so I started interfacing with the Disney Music. It was Hollywood Records, I think they have a couple different record labels, but it's all part of the Disney music group. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they flew out to make this album and on like unseasonably uh, unexpected weather hit. And we got socked in with a blizzard. Uh, Mm -hmm. The kind of blizzard that happens once every decade. We're like, you can't cross the street. So we're stuck in a hotel, 
like long late brunch just sitting down there like you know you know getting refills on your coffee and tea and long conversations about this that and the other thing um with uh two of the members of the disney music group danny and laura and it's kind of positive conversation and one of them turns to me and says have you ever considered doing a disney acapella group and i said well, I have done Disney acapella groups. I did uh, Group 66 for Disney California Adventure and American Vibe at Epcot. Both of them ran for about five years. It was really great experience and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, 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 no. We mean like a major international touring ensemble like, like a Disney Pentatonix. Hmm. And that's all I needed. I was ready. <laughs> I had my elevator pitch going because uh, for a couple of years already, I had a number of groups come to me and say, okay, Deke, what can we do? Pentatonix has gotten so big. Straightener Chasers out there. These groups are crushing it. And I, like, I'm not going to name names, but we're like second tier now. Like, and we're not as well known as these others. And they're getting all these big bookings. What can we do to up our game and get booked into these major performing arts centers and, and take our touring to the next level? And I thought about it and I realized it's screens. If you could take a great acapella group and marry them with huge... Uh, high definition screens on the stage, they could mm-hmm. use, they wouldn't even have to get rights. They could use public domain footage and throw up behind them a clip from, I don't know, it's a wonderful life or Metropolis. And they could take uh, comics like Popeye that are in the public domain, like just use footage and then also take their own songs and make music videos for them that are big and beautiful and splash them behind them. And then all of a sudden they have like, a larger than life production that's much bigger than what most acapella groups would do. And if, and they could also do a thematic thing. They could do a history of, of, of vocal music. They could do like, there are all these different shows that could be built and all these groups are like, God, that's such a great idea. I love it. And they never did anything with it. So <laughs> I was like, Oh, do I have the idea for you? So I just started spitballing and I was like, and with the Disney properties, you guys have all the intellectual property, right? Like imagine having an acapella group on the stage and projected behind them, are scenes from the movie that they're singing the soundtrack for um, and with modern technology and they could have in-ears where it's timed together so the screens click or like change right at the right moments and the lighting is all synced in and whatever and they were like whoa mm-hmm. uh maybe you should fly out to burbank and we should take a meeting so a couple <laughs> meetings later and um they loved it i mean they the Daryl, the the uh, internal attorney, he's a, he said like it was three minutes and you'd sold everybody on this whole idea, and he was he was super helpful with the whole thing. Anyway, then it was time for casting, and we saw videos from thousands and thousands of people from all over the country. Uh, they had to be U.S. citizens, so the international thing wouldn't have worked, and whittled mm-hmm. it down to a tremendous double cast. In fact, because initially, uh, and that's why the album has two sets of seven on it. Because mm-hmm. I thought Disney was going to want a group that they could have, like, one's on tour in Dubai and another one's doing things here in the U.S. Or, you know, and it would be almost like the Mickey Mouse Club and the Musketeers and where you had multiple people and it wasn't like you just had cast one on a part. But after the group started taking off, it was clear from the marketing side, they were like, we want to build a cult of personality around the individuals. Like, we need one per part. And so, mm-hmm. unfortunately, they went from 14 down to 7. Um, and uh, it's been go, go, go ever since. Um, and, in fact, a lot of Disney's uh, entertainment arm has had had to just let go so many performers. I have so many friends in Orlando and, and in Anaheim who were working full-time for Disney and 
got their their walking paper, sadly, and hopefully they'll be rehired in the future. But the Disney Music Group believes so much in Di Capella. They're continuing to create new music, new uh, arrangements, new videos, and the groups out there on television and partnering with other things. And there's already all this pent-up interest in them internationally. The Japan tour was mind-blowing. The group went there for the first time, and they were in like a 2,500-seat performing arts center in the middle of Tokyo. They sold out a dozen dozen, uh, dates like right away before they even did the first show. Like it was, they're a huge, they're big in Japan, man. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, And there's already interest from China and Korea and and other places around Asia. and, And we're talking about their first Europe trip and all that. So it's literally just wait until it's safe. And then, uh, the barn door will be open and the group is going <laughs> to hope they're ready. I'm sure they are. I know they are. I've spoken with them and we've done remote recordings or whatever, but they are ready to get on the road and the world is ready for more, mm-hmm. more vocal harmony. Yes, we are. <laughs> um, before we go, I have one last question and it's to everyone listening out there. My question to you is, um, you know, you even said at the beginning of, of the interview, how, um, the pandemic has really hit everybody hard. Um, but everyone's trying their best to keep up in high spirits. And, um, you know, you've, you've done so much in your career, you've done so much in your life. And you even said you've had your successes, but you've also had your, your nose and, and your failures. Um, is there any wisdom or advice that you can impart on listeners? Um, you know, especially during this time that, um, that would be a positive, um, give the, give them a positive outlook on what they're doing right now. Well, uh, the first thing I'd say is it sucks. Like, let's just admit it. It absolutely right. sucks. The thing that we do is about connecting people in real time in person. I mean, and, and one of the hardest things around creating the sing-off and creating Pitch Perfect was to try to make acapella compelling and interesting on a small screen or a big screen because the magic that happens in the room just doesn't get captured when you post something on YouTube, right? You have to go out of your way for camera angles and EQ and overdubs and lighting and close-ups. You have to go out, like do all of these things just to create the simple transcendent moment that happens when a few people stand in a circle and sing together. So mm-hmm. let's just, first of all, say it sucks. The second thing I'd say is, know that this will pass. We are all going to get together again. There's no question. There have been many uh, pandemics and horrible episodes in human history, and people have come back stronger. This too shall pass, and group singing will happen again. So there's no question. It is coming. It's on the horizon. And thankfully, we live in a time where a vaccine can be developed so quickly, and now we're literally just talking about rolling it out, and, and then people will be back together. But what I would say is right now is the time for you to focus on skills that will be really beneficial when you all do get back together. So first of all, work on your own voice, work on your vocal range, sing as much as you can, stay, you know, happy. The people who are in your pod, who are in your family or in your living, you know, whatever, make music with them. And maybe it's like a weird configuration of voices, but you can still make some harmony. You can still do some stuff. Um, and a uh, side note to educators who are having to get through all of this, my heart goes out to you. It is so difficult to run any kind of an educational experience over Zoom, but choir is the hardest. And I know I've talked to a lot of educators whose classes have dropped in half. They're, they're going to come back. People will come back. I promise mm-hmm. you that. But anyway, for those of you out there wondering, like, 
work on your audio editing skills, your video editing skills, like learn more about the best ways to reach people through social media, all these things, all these skills and tools that will benefit you and your group for the rest of your life. Um, focus on that. It's not everything. It doesn't have the satisfaction of getting together and singing, but anything that you can do to make it more effective once you do get back together is, is it, it's like you're planting good seeds in your mind. You're building up important muscles and important skills that will make it all better. And then, um, you know, springs on the horizon. Yeah. Awesome. Deke, it has been, uh, God, it's, it's been an honor to have you uh, catch up with you one and just like learn so much from you this week. So, um, Deke Sharon, thank you so much for joining me on the Aka Education Podcast. Of course, it's my pleasure. And anybody who wants to reach out who has questions, ideas, just know that we're all in the same family. You can find me on social media anywhere. Just email me, deke at deksharon.com. And I reply. I'd be happy to answer your questions. And anything I can do to help make your lives easier as you are educating people or making acapella, I'm happy to do. We're all spreading harmony through harmony, making the world a better place. So... Thanks for being out there, educating people and being on the front lines. And Justin, thank you for this great podcast and for inviting me to be a part of it. Absolutely beautiful. And um, we'll post, actually, we'll post some some links to some different things uh, of yours as well in the episode description when it pops up um, or when this airs. So um, thank you again, Deke Sharon. Uh, We'll be right back. for another episode of the Aka Education Podcast. I'd like to thank my guest this week, the one and only Deke Sharon. The guy does it all. You've heard it throughout. You know, you heard stories about Pitch Perfect. You heard stories about Deke Capelli. You heard stories about the house jack and even Nexium. Yeesh. Anyway, thanks, Deke. Be sure to check out the links in the episode description for resources from this week's episode. Follow the podcast on social media at Aka Ed Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow me, Justin Glodish, at Official JGlow on TikTok and Twitter. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're found on Anchor, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. New episodes are released every Wednesday. You can also now tune into the podcast on Akaville Radio, Akaville.org. If interested in supporting this podcast with a monthly donation, go over to anchor.fm slash podcast to do so. And if you ever have any questions about the podcast, suggestions on future guests, please email me at akaedpodcast at gmail.com or leave a voice message on the Anchor website. From the Aka Education Podcast, I'm Justin Glodish. We'll talk soon.